Um, I want to introduce you to a couple of people today. Here's the first one. <clears throat> this man, his name is Joel Salatin. And Joel owns a uh, farm called Polyface Farm in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Uh, if you've eaten at Chipotle, you have eaten Joel's chicken. Okay? So just, just so that you understand, this is important, right? Chipotle chicken's important stuff. Uh, Joel is a popular speaker um, in uh, certain agricultural circles, and he is the author of several books. Uh, for instance, one of those titles is uh, Your Successful Farm Business, which is really no-nonsense kind of title, followed by um, Folks, This Ain't Normal, which is one of my personal favorites, right? And <laughs> I like, I like Joel an awful lot. Joel gained some attention a few years back um, in a book, if you've read it, you may, you may recognize the name, called The Omnivore's Dilemma. So there's a researcher, his name is Michael Pollard, and Michael had this epiphany about the American food supply while he was standing at Polyface Farms talking with Joel Salatin. So if you've read Omnivore's Dilemma, you probably have bumped into Joel's name before. But what I like the most about Joel is how he describes himself. Okay, ready for this? He's a Christian libertarian environmentalist capitalist lunatic farmer. <laughs> And he, say, he says that over and over again, but he is, uh, he is all of that and more. And if you listen to him speak for more than about 10 minutes, he covers all of those very quickly. He's a very engaging speaker, very down-to-earth kind of guy. Now, uh, let me also introduce you to this man. His name is Gabe Brown. Um, Gabe and his son Paul run Brown's Ranch in Bismarck, North Dakota, which is a long way away from, from the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and it's a lot colder there. I'm just going to tell you that up front. <clears throat> he also is a very sought-after speaker himself, um, and the reason why is that he's a cattleman, and cattle ranchers are interested because uh, Gabe is able to get more yield per acre from his cattle than anybody else in his county, and he usually exceeds national averages. And remember, we're talking about Bismarck, North Dakota here, okay? So he has uh, an incredible process for raising cattle, but he is not an industrial agriculturalist. He does something very, very different, and this is what I found on his on the website for um, Brown's Farm or Brown's Ranch that I really like. He said, "We believe that faith, family, and working with the natural resources that God has provided allows us a meaningful life." Isn't that beautiful? And I mean, that's the first sentence that you read on their website. And what I find so fascinating about these men is that aside from their obvious faith. They are known for sustainable agricultural practices, specifically their attention to regenerating soil. In fact, if you ask Gabe Brown what he farms, he will tell you he farms dirt. All the other stuff is what happens after he pays attention to the actual soil, to the actual dirt. Now, this is really important. I think, um, because there have been a number of studies recently that suggest that usable topsoil is eroding at a very alarming rate, and this is due largely to industrial agricultural practices, specifically those that are um, uh, dependent on artificial chemicals for fertilizer and for growing processes. One study estimates that depletion could occur in the next 60 to 100 years. 
Now remember, this is how we grow food, okay? And the medium in which we grow food could be completely depleted in the next 60 to 100 years. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I are necessarily going to feel that pressure, but our kids and our grandkids probably will, all right? So you've got to keep that in mind. One uh, United Nations official made this comment, industrial agriculture is good at feeding people, but it is not sustainable. And fortunately, I think, there's this growing um, movement of people who are working with nature rather than despite nature um, to find sustainable methods of feeding people. And uh, I think that's an important thing. And so the question that you're probably asking is, why on earth is, is, is David introducing these people to us in church on Sunday? Well, gee, I'm glad that you asked that question. Uh, We're going to take a quick break from our series called The Road Out of Town because today is Earth Day. And my seven-year-old daughter reminded me of this, and uh, I try to do um, a message related to this every year, um, but sometimes you get involved in a series, and there's my seven-year-old going, hey, this week is Earth Week. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's important that we talk about these things. And so since 1970, when the, uh, the uh, senator from Wisconsin, Gaylord Nelson, proposed this idea, um, we've been celebrating one day out of the year to just try and bring some attention to and to highlight uh, things related to the planet, related to the environment. And to be honest, when I think about the problems that we face environmentally, Um, and I think about the work of these particular men, there's a couple of biblical passages that come to my mind, and I want to share them with you and and try to to look at this from from a biblical lens. And to do that, we need to start at the very beginning of the book. And I mean, when I'm talking about the very beginning, I mean the very beginning of the book. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when you open up the pages, the first thing that we find is a poem. Chapter 1 of Genesis is a poem, and we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we know this. This is not a reference to baseball. In the big inning, right? That's really lousy pastor humor. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Groans are expected at this point. That's okay. In fact, it says, wait for groans to die down here. Okay. So it starts, the poem begins with this, but as you go through, um, the poet begins to outline how God put together the earth and and what what happened over a period of time. And and towards the end, we find this in, in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. Remember, this is the end of the poem. So all of, of land was created and water was created and light was created and dark was created and all the animals were. And at the very end, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. Now in theology, we have a Latin term for this because we can't actually use English. You have to use another language in theology. And it's called the Imago Dei. And it means the image of God. And so every person that you meet, and you've heard me talk about this before, bears the imprint of the divine. There is something truly unique about humanity over all the rest of creation. And this is how um, the ancient Israelites chose to understand this, that we bear that imprint of the divine. But the problem is that I see There's a danger here, and the danger is when we take that idea of the image of God being placed into us, and we see it as a source of rights, 
I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. Why? Because I am somehow more superior because of what God has put in me and not the rest of creation. It's about rights. Well, that may be true that there are certain rights, but let me tell you that there is definitely responsibility. And I think sometimes we misplace our energy and we think more about rights than we do about the responsibility that we have. Let me continue on. God blessed them, these people that he created, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. How many of you have seen this before? Yes? Yeah, this is a common passage in the scripture. Now, Here's the thing that we've got to pay close attention to. There's two very key words here. Here's the first one. It's subdue. And by the way, the Hebrew word is kabosh. Have you ever put the kabosh on something? These words actually come from somewhere, right? Subdue. This is often a military term, but we have to be very careful how we understand it. It carries with it this idea of bringing something under control. Subduing, in this case, does not mean destroying. It means bringing something under control. Does that make sense? There's a difference there. Sometimes when we think in terms of military and conquest and subjugation, we think about completely destroying, eliminating the threat, or if you like the military term, neutralizing. Okay, there's different ways of neutralizing. That doesn't necessarily mean completely destroying. It means bringing something under control. And that's the word that's here. Subdue the earth. I've made this created order. I want you to bring it under control. In other words, God's saying, do something with it. Does that make sense? So there's this idea of of subdue. Be productive with it. Do something with it. Bring it under control. Now, the second word, and this is one where we get into a lot of trouble, is rule. Subdue it and rule over it. If you remember, there's a King James Version, I think, is have dominion over it. How many of you remember that one, right? Uh, in fact, there's a whole um, a theology based on that called dominionist. It's one that I don't prescribe to myself um, because this word um, in Hebrew, radah, carries with it the idea of reigning over something. But you have to understand the context here. Yes, humanity is supposed to reign over creation, but please understand there is one who reigns over us. It is the creator. So this is not carte blanche, do whatever you want. You are going to reign. Yes, you are going to rule. You are going to have some authority over it, but please understand that you are beneath the king. And when we talk about things like the kingdom of God around here, remember there's no kingdom without a king. So we do have a king. So you have to think in terms of the reign of God, the rule of humanity over all of creation. And so the idea that's carried here, and the one that we need to gravitate towards, is this one, stewardship. And by the way, this is the way John Wesley understood this this word as well. This is the best word because the idea here is that we are managing something that belongs to someone else. And if the creator has created the creation... And we have the image of of God within us. That means we are responsible for it. Are you with me? This is an important thing for us to remember. Because when we look at this early poem, 
in the beginning part of this book, there is a relationship here that is so important of where humanity is in between God, the creator, and ruler and king over creation and his creation. We are his representatives on earth. That's what we are. And that's the best way to understand how that passage works. Where do we belong in this created order? We belong as stewards of all of it. Now, fortunately for us, in the next chapter, chapter 2, we get a little more detail about this. The poem actually stops at the end of chapter 1, and a narrative begins in chapter 2. So think of it this way. Chapter 1 is general, and chapter 2 is specific, okay? And, and what, we can, what, what we begin to read is in uh, chapter, um, chapter 2, verse 8. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there uh, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, um, there are all kinds of things we could say about those two particular trees, but that's a sermon for another day, so you're going to have to come back at another point and I'll pick it up. But when we look at this idea of the garden and how God made humanity in his image, he took this particular individual and he put them in the Garden of Eden, okay? And so what happens is that the Garden of Eden becomes kind of this example or uh, illustration or microcosm, if you like more technical terms, of, of the way humanity is supposed to interact with the created order, okay? So we've got this illustration, and this is what's, what's coming out of, out of this particular narrative. And so if you keep on reading, you eventually bump into this verse, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Pretty easy, right? Okay, let's unpack that a little bit because there's some important things in here. This is pivotal for our discussion, and there are two key words in here as well. The first one is to work it. The word here is abad. It is an agricultural term that is often used for tilling the soil, and so the best way to understand that is to cultivate it, to cultivate it. So think about somebody with some type of farm tool in the dirt tilling up that soil, making it, making it uh, usable for planting. So God put the human, huma, uh, the human being into the garden, and he said to cultivate it, and then secondly, he said to take care of it, right? This is shamar, that's the word, and it carries with it the idea of to keep watch or guard and protect. So cultivate and care for the garden. Hmm. And so now we have a better understanding of how we're supposed to steward the earth, okay? So remember, here we got humanity's in the middle, God's the king, we're the stewards over the created order. What does that look like? Two things, care and cultivate, or cultivate and care. Two things. So when we talk about this idea of cultivating it, is it yes, you're supposed to benefit from the created order, You're supposed to do that. Uh, You're supposed to benefit from it and the work that you do. And so the idea here is be creative. Be creative with what you do with the created order in front of it and enjoy it. However, because you're supposed to care for it, you are not allowed um, to, to enjoy it at the expense of the whole creation. Does that make sense? There's no abuse here. There's no depletion. 
You with me? So if you're going to cultivate it, that's fine. You can benefit from it, but don't, don't do it in such a way that you completely deplete it. Because if you're looking at it strictly for me and my use and my rights, it's a very short-term view. There's a longer view here in play, one that God has put into his people. Your job is to cultivate it, yes, but also care for it, to guard it and protect it. So what I really want to make sure is, before we leave here, is that we're completely clear over what we're saying. We are made in God's image. Would you agree with that? Yes. Word says that. We are his representatives on earth, and yes, we have certain rights, but we also have responsibilities, okay? He is the creator, we are the stewards, and here's the bottom line, I think. Our stewardship has not been revoked. There is no place in the scriptures where God takes away this command to cultivate and care for it. Stewardship has never once been revoked. You cannot find it in the scriptures. We still are supposed to cultivate and care. Now, please understand, that may look very, very different today than it did at the time of Adam and Eve, okay? It doesn't mean that we all have to become farmers. Praise God, right? Yeah. But we, we have no right to deplete the resources of this planet. And we are to keep the ecosystem going for the benefit of all. That's our role. And as followers of Jesus, <laughs> to make this a little more intense, as followers of Jesus, we are supposed to consider the other, the people around us. There's this... Uh, pretty famous passage where Jesus is asked, what's the most important of all the commandments? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. And then he makes this stunning statement. He goes, the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then somebody says, who's my neighbor? Oh, wrong question. (laughs) Right? And so he gives this great story and he casts a really wide net who your neighbor is. If you're supposed to love them, you have to, you're supposed to love humanity. Broad definition. So if you agree with that, if you agree with the things that we're talking about here, if you see yourself in the role as a steward and you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, then your theology has some implications. I hate to break that one to you, but there's some theological implications. Your theology ought to influence some of your decisions, some of your actions, some of your behaviors. Frankly, it should influence all of your behaviors. But in this case, I want to highlight just a couple of them. Your theology ought to influence at some level on what you buy because we vote for things with our dollars. No, I don't necessarily cultivate the soil and grow food, but where things come from, how they get there, all of those components to bring things to my store, my theology ought to pay attention to those things because my neighbor has produced it. And I have no idea 
the conditions that my neighbor is actually in. Uh, how many people have a cell phone with you? <laughs> yeah, we all have a cell phone. I found this out not too long ago, um, but uh, when you, I, I, there are lots of different manufacturers for them. I happen to like um, the iPhone. Some people have other ones that they prefer. That's okay. There's prayer for that. But <laughs> when you open up an iPhone in particular, there's a little, little um, um, some words on the back of the box that says designed in California. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's manufactured in China. Now, my presumption is, because it is a major company with a lot of attention, that, that people in China who are putting my iPhone together are, are getting some kind of a living wage and have decent working conditions. Otherwise, oh my gosh, we would, we would hear about that. The news would have a frenzy over it. But what I found out not too long ago is that there's a particular metal that's involved in the making of an iPhone. It's called tungsten. Have you heard of tungsten? Tungsten is actually um, what's called a blood mineral. It's actually a term. It means that um, the conditions of the people who pull that stuff out of the ground is highly questionable. And I'm sanitizing it, right? Now, there's been some move among manufacturers to try to make some changes. I don't know where that is, but... But if, if I'm really interested in my neighbor, in my neighbor is that broad of definition, then I have to pay attention at some level to what's in my phone. Are you with me on this? If we're Christians and we believe that we are stewards and we believe that we are supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, then at some level we have to pay attention to not only the things we buy, but how we buy them and how they get to us at the store. Now, does that mean that you can track every single one of them down? Of course not. That is a really difficult task to do. I'm not suggesting that. But at some level, this is what we're talking about, how theology impacts the types of behaviors we have and the things that we buy. It ought to also impact the things that we eat. Not that we're just putting good fuel into our bodies, which is true. We ought to be doing that. But also demanding the types of food unprocessed stuff, the stuff without the junk. And if you don't believe me, just talk to any parent who has a child with ADHD and say the word red dye 40. <laughs> right? I don't even want to know what 1 through 39 looked like. Right? <laughs> so, but the point is that what we're trying to make is that we're demanding not only what food we get, but how we're getting the food because we're depleting the topsoil in this country and we're not going to be able to produce food. I kind of get concerned for my own grandkids. And not just for my grandkids, but your grandkids and the ones that live all around the world because the population is growing exponentially. That's just reality. So we need to take our theology seriously. We are stewards. We love our neighbor as ourselves, and that theology has implications in the types of things that we eat and how we demand our food. It should also you know, impact what we drive. Please understand, I'm not saying, what would Jesus drive, okay? I have no idea. <laughs> Jesus liked to walk. That's not the important thing here. But I think what is important is how we consume energy, you know, what are the implications of a fossil fuel-based economy? Well, we've seen it. <laughs> 
We've seen it with the economy of the state and how we pay our teachers or don't pay our teachers or how we fund schools or mental health institutions in this particular state. And every state has its own issues, right? But the point is, is that this has implications. Are we stewarding this? And as Christians, we have to pay attention to that because we are stewards. It should also impact the, the uh, issues that we support, the way in which we live, and yes, it should impact who we vote for. Ooh, it got quiet in here. Hmm. So on this Earth Day, <laughs> on this Earth Day, what I really want for you is to simply be grateful for this big, beautiful world that we live in. And it's gorgeous, and it's amazing, and there are things that are going on underneath the surface that we don't even fully understand. And that you're, you're mindful of your role, that you're still supposed to cultivate and care for this place in which we live. And it's not just for your benefit, but it's for the benefit of all and subsequent generations that we would take a longer view of all of this. And for those of you who find this as important as I do, yes, I'm giving you permission to eat more Chipotle. <laughs>